welcome to another episode of The Brand Called You. Today we have a very, very accomplished individual, an old friend, um, a well-known personality, Devashish Mitter. Uh, Devashish, welcome to the podcast Brand Called You. I'm so delighted that you could find time to join us. Thank you, Ashutosh. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you. Uh, Devashish, we'll talk a little bit about your early life. When I say early life, I don't mean to say that you're old or I'm old. I'm older than you. But uh, your early corporate life, you know, you spent time with Schlumberger. Then you had an amazing uh, career with American Express. And then you decided to change focus and go into uh, what I would maybe loosely refer to as the social sector, working with the Michael and Susan Dell Foundation. So I'd love to hear a little bit about your journey. I know you're a chartered accountant, so... Sure, sure. I think uh, primarily uh, during my early days of Swambhaji and then uh, there was a self-realization. What do I, what am I passionate about? What do I enjoy doing? Yes, though I'm a chartered accountant, uh, doing just accountancy did not excite me. So I said, how can I evolve myself to a role which has got wider impact. So in American Express, I moved into strategy, large scale operation, and really more of large business problem solving. And that's been one of the threads that has run through my career and probably has influenced my landing with the Dell Foundation. Um, What I believe I gathered over and developed over the years are three skills uh, over in a, over the long period of time. One is strategic thinking. How does one look at a problem very differently and, and solve it? Second, how does one support that with strong execution and operational excellence? And third, how to manage talent? And these are the three things I really enjoyed. It's a learning. I'll still learn. But after the period with Slumberger and then with American Express, a couple of sort of questions came to my mind. One was great in the corporate sector. I was doing that. But is there an opportunity to take the same expertise and same learning uh, onto a larger canvas? Mm-hmm. Parallelly, I think what happened is India started sort of going through and still going through probably one of the most exciting periods in its history. With 1.3 billion people out of 8 billion on earth, whatever is happening today in India is not just going to affect India, but it's going to shape the way things happening in the world. And exciting things are happening in India. And frankly, that's the time I said, let me not only look at the broader social canvas, but let me move back to India. I didn't want to lose the transformative journey that's underway right now in India. So that was something that I was going to ask you a question about. And I know I moved back to India after seven, eight years outside India. And I often wondered, uh, you know, what my life would have been outside India. And I know you lived outside India for many, many years. Um, what made you move back? 
was it just the missionary zeal to do something for the country or do you missed home too much i think uh, you know professional professionals like you and me i think uh, if it even sounds a little immodest i think we would have been successful even abroad if we stayed back right. um my career with slumbuji or american express i was very fortunate to be on a fast track yeah. but i what excited me was that what excites me even today is to solve problems at scale and that in addition to obviously the opportunity to do sort of that as you refer to that missionary zeal i think is a professional and personal satisfaction i want to get by contributing to if i can sort of even use the terminology in a nation building that's going on in india i don't think that sort of an opportunity comes in people's lives unless one is very deliberate about it because what you know the corporate life almost you become very comfortable yeah. in it and one tends to constantly uh, you know financially and otherwise gets rewarded so it is it 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 is in some ways very intoxicating mm. but to me i was thinking that do i want to necessarily be on that path which is not bad at all mm-hmm. but could i also expand my horizon and participate in something which i can look back with a different satisfaction and that's what really speaking uh, and some of the connections of course happen very um, fortuitously uh, of how i came into contact with the foundation etc but that urge inside me was developing for quite some time mm. that can i use the same you know, skills that made me successful in the corporate world to bring about change and 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 positively impact probably millions who are not going to be necessarily the customers and shareholders of the corporate world amazing so at msdf um your mission is very clearly to transform the lives of children living in urban poverty um msdf is all over the world um talk to us a little bit about what msdf does um and uh, what are you doing in india sure so it's a first of all it's a family foundation it's the foundation of michael dell and susan dell and uh, the founders have uh, deployed their personal wealth to improve the lives of children who live in urban poverty across the whole world no we are right now in three geographies okay. us the first international uh, foray was india about 13 years back wow. and then 7 years back we went to south africa the reason for us to focus on these three uh, these three are big enough to make sustainable and deep changes correct so the mission is to transform lives of children in living in urban poverty mm-hmm. through education and improved economic condition in india we look at that mission and say we will always be absolutely true to the mission that's one way we have allowed ourselves to be laser focused yeah. but how do we achieve that and that that sort of strategy to achieve that is a very much of a local understanding of what the market needs what the situation on the ground is and there are three things we the three levers we use to achieve that objective first education is at the core of any transformation as we all know mm-hmm. 
Second is jobs and livelihoods. In a country like India, even with the tremendous GDP growth, we know that there won't be enough jobs for every individual. Mm -hmm. So concepts like promoting micro-entrepreneurship in a very structured and very scalable way, just as an example, or how do, uh, how do we use technology to unlock economic value in jobs livelihoods? Mm -hmm. are, the, uh, are the sort of sort of thoughts of the ideas that we are pursuing in jobs livelihoods? And the last area that we work in is financial products. Essentially, all these are targeted towards the base of the pyramid. So financial products is essentially to say what financial products that do not exist today, mm -hmm that if we were to design and introduce in the market, in a market sustainable way, would do either of the two things. One would help improve or increase the income level of people at the bottom of the pyramid. And two, allow them to withstand financial shocks. So we are constantly trying to innovate and bring into the market financial products that uh, we sort of try to design. Second thing I would say our approach is that there are three sort of metrics we try to maximize in doing or in either any one of these verticals. First is measurable outcome. So not input focused, but outcome. So if it is jobs livelihoods, it's not enough to say we have given training but how much income of that person has finally gone up. We hold ourselves accountable for that. If it is education, it's not enough to say we have trained teachers. It is how much learning level change has happened to the children. If it is financial products, how much of income has increased because of accessing. So one is first is impact, very, very data-driven impact focus. Second is long-term sustainability. So anywhere we choose and we deploy our resources, we want to make sure that there is long-term sustainability even after MSDF's involvement. So they, it, hopefully they will be for, in perpetuity. Yeah. And last is it has to be at scale meaningful in a country like India. So those are the three things, three metrics we try to uh, optimize. And the last thing I would say is that we are quite agnostic. Working in a country like India, I think we are very fortunate that we are very agnostic to the financial tool we deploy. Mm -hmm. So we do grants, we do equity investment, we do debt financing, and whatever the country's laws allow us, we participate in that to drive these uh, you know, institutions and enterprises to finally serve that mission of changing the lives of children living in our poverty. Mm -hmm. that's, that's really our objective and fantastic model of operation. You know, you have invested upwards of 200 million, touched the lives of 12 million children, invested in, I think, 35, 40 companies. And I've had the privilege of having served on one of your investment company, one of your investee company boards. I look at you as an entrepreneur of entrepreneurs. I mean, you know, someone who's sitting on top of so many. Uh, how do you manage so many diverse individuals who are startup entrepreneurs delivering your vision 
uh, or your foundation's vision in terms of making sure that the urban child, uh, their needs are protected through your three pillars. How do you manage the diversity of so many CEOs? So a couple of things, uh, Ashutosh. First, uh, we are a very sort of hands-on management style, which means that uh, we remain very closely engaged with the promoters, um, whether at a in the, as a member of the board or advisory or uh, you know observer yeah. or whatever be the structure. So it's not something that we necessarily say once we have made the investment, we'll meet you after the you know investment is over. So we're yeah. very close to. However, as you say that because of the breadth and the spread, not only it is a matter of whether do we have the bandwidth to do it, but I think even more importantly, what we have realized is what we need to also provide is the connection to the best expertise across industries, across uh, functional areas that all these organizations need, but often are not able to tap. We help our entrepreneurs or even state governments when we are working with them to mine, analyze and leverage data to run the large uh, initiatives or companies instead of being focused on the inputs. So there are multiple approaches we take. Uh, we leverage the expertise of the top consulting firms when we are trying to solve very difficult, wicked problems like failing government schools, mm. uh, which is such a big challenge. So there are many ways and many sort of levers we uh, deploy, but it's definitely not easy having this sort of a breadth and width of investments. But overall, I think we see from the very measurable outcomes we decide right at the beginning, mm. keeping focus on the outcome and those metrics allows us not to get distracted by the noise and clutter, otherwise which can you know, distract us. Yeah. So would I be fair in saying that uh, you would be like a compassionate private equity investor with a heart? I think that's a very accurate description. Right? Very not, accurate. Not waiting to see um, when can I get my money back at so-and-so internal rate of return, but encouraging entrepreneurs to achieve their dreams and yet meeting a social uh, objective. Absolutely. That's a great point you touched, uh, Ashutosh. We are often asked, uh, is it the return that attracts you to these investments? The answer to that is that, no, we are not attracted by the return as much as the social change that can be achieved. However, for the companies we invest in, if they are not financially stable and healthy, then if they fail, then all our efforts goes to Correct. waste. To, to that extent, their financial health and success and growth and being able to continue to attract more capital to scale 
is very important for us. But that's not the driver of our objective. Our objective is the social change, impact, sustainability and scale. But yes, those are very important factors if we need to have this scale sustainable over a long period of time. Very interesting. So continuing with your own uh, comment on scale, um, the next question would be with you know so many investments and uh, with all these entrepreneurs, all of them are ambitious. Um, how do you handle their ambition to scale up? Some of them may be ready, some of them may not be ready. Yeah. And I'm sure as board members, you must be counseling them. So what are the challenges your investing companies face in scaling up? In fact, I will respond to this question, which is which sort of uh, uh, occupies our mind every day, mm -hmm. as you can imagine, because of the three metrics, one is scale. Yeah. Uh, I will respond to you uh, in, for, in two parts. One is how do we achieve or think about scale when it is a transformation of a public good like education? And then I will also respond to you in terms of more social enterprises, market-based models. I think the first one, or even the second one, one of the fundamental challenges is not thinking of scale at the stage of the design. The reason why so many very, very well-intended, uh, talented people mm -hmm. have been focused on uh, improving the quality of learning in government schools, unfortunately doesn't seem to be moving the needle, is fundamentally that what works in 50 schools does not work for 50,000 schools. That's a fallacy often that uh, affects a lot of thinking that if we can show success in 50 schools, mm -hmm. it can change, we can Take it to 50,000 schools. It doesn't. The design has to be for 50,000. Then if one wants to prototype it over 50, that's a very different approach to scale. So that's why when we work with the government, and the government is also, as you I'm sure aware, is somewhat skeptical if one goes to them and says, we want to do pilots. They've seen too many pilots remain small and never scale. So when we go to the government, and what probably attracts the government to the conversation we have is to say, let's look at your entire unit of change, which is the state. So a state like Rajasthan had about 75,000 public schools in the, in the primary grades. Um, a state like Haryana would have anywhere 15 to 20,000 schools. So the design itself, uh, you know, is very different. And I'll come to what that design and how that affects. On the on the more sort of market-based models of companies and entrepreneurs, I think fundamentally what comes in the way of scaling is lack of true deep understanding of customers. Too often, entrepreneurs get confused with what they think is a very smart product. But product is not equal to business. Mm -hmm. Business brings in so many other factors, right? So understanding customer, understanding paying customer who would, there's a repeatable business model that grows. 
is a big gap in many entrepreneurs minds and not understanding that has variety of implications one they struggle to scale second without understanding the customer the value proposition is never clear enough where they're able to create a successful business model mm. and very soon and often they burn through their entire cash mm. and they're sitting and saying why are the customers not buying the problem is not with the customer mm. the problem is what we are trying to sell yes. and is there a value proposition mm. so i would say those are the two primary ones if i were to look at the public goods and the commercial goods not understanding customers and not designing for scale are the biggest handicaps and biggest hurdles that we find uh, that prevents these institutions scaling amazing you've been working with state governments you've been working with the central government and i'm going to use the word surprisingly that you know you've had a very good experience um what is it that you do differently with governments in such a such as you know in, in an area which is so tightly controlled that is education because you seem to be making a lot of great inroads and some of the other private uh, educational institutions seem to be struggling so what is it that you're doing that is right probably there is an element of luck right. but i think a uh, couple of things i yeah. would say i believe our first 5 years of work in india ashutosh was much more traditional let's work with a number of ngos and civil society small scale and try to see if we can move the needle we believe looking back those were five years very well spent mm-hmm. because it helped us really understand what the core systemic problems were and still are that prevents government systems from changing second it also gave us a tremendous amount of helped us appreciate the challenges which a government faces versus if we were to look at it from a very narrow angle from outside and say why is and they doing this or why and they doing that that's where i think we pivoted after mm-hmm. our first 5 years to take a much more systemic approach to um sort of education transformation and what does that mean really couple of things one first and foremost to make sure that our objective is not ever to go in and run the government schools correct it is government's responsibility and they're very very aware that it's their responsibility our approach is to show what are the ways and means they can change the way they run their government the schools and deliver excellent quality of education what we have found and i'll tell you a little bit as to how that once we approach it that way that we are here to make sir chief minister madam chief minister the education secretary we are here to make you successful it's not msd you really run i think the conversation changes dramatically we are not here to run a parallel education system we are not here to tell you how many you know what problems are. we all are aware of it let's let's now jointly think about you know changing or looking at the problem in a very different way 
Second, I think what has happened, as I was saying, the first five years of the work, where we brought in the best consulting firms to work with the government, all always under the leadership of the government, because nobody is more passionate, nobody is more committed to the welfare of the children than the government is. Right. Whatever anybody says, they are, and they understand that. Yeah. Often what they need is a different way of looking at the problem. So let me give you, you know, what we have found. Um, in government schools, the fact that the quality of education is not high in the classroom. Surprisingly, 70% of the influencing reason has got nothing to do with academic. I see. It has entirely to do with structural and administrative way the government education department is structured and functions. Wow. So unless and until we're able to go there and change that, any amount of activity that we try to do in the classroom or with pedagogy, etc., nothing will change. So our approach, which now not only the state governments see the, see the result of them being able to manage it. What are those things? There are many really having... Um, you know, insightful data from the classroom to the cinemas level of the state government and how do you use data? How do you use accountability in a positive way rather than in a sort of a negative way? How does one do that? How does one leverage technology not in a what is often thought about, let's give a computer to the uh, student that comes much later in our yeah. game plan it is to say how does the whole system move on to technology platform so that the very valuable time of the teacher the officials the secretary gets released so that they can focus on real value added. so these things are what are really moving the needle first and so today if you look at it in the four states we are working not only the uh, uh, government is being able to achieve significantly better educational outcomes, entirely their leadership. Mm -hmm. We will always say it's they, and we are actually very impressed with the leadership they show. Mm -hmm. Because the solutions that come on the structural and uh, administrative are sometimes very tough decisions mm -hmm. to take. But they're showing immense amount of, uh, I would say, boldness. Yeah courage to do that because they see why that can change. To the extent now, Ashutosh, we are very humbled that uh, this model approach has now been sort of uh, uh, identified and being sort of supported by Niti Aayog. And they're taking this and offering to and expanding to multiple other states. Yes. And uh, last thing I would say is what I think makes every day worth for us to work on this is uh, yesterday itself the news of the class 12 results were out and Haryana has had one of the best class 12 results in decades. And so that's ultimately uh, why I think to your point uh, why we are uh, seeing the ownership, the sponsorship, 
leading from the front, leadership from the government, because they see that we are going to the core of the issue and not just saying, let's really put all the pressure on the frontline worker, which everybody has done, but unless you fix those, and by fixing those, the the ease of running business, so to say, if I can say, for the government has tremendously improved. So they are sort of very eagerly adopting that. And uh, we actually, to your point, uh, we, we find working with the government to be one of the most satisfying and most rewarding work we do in India. Incredible. Incredible. That's so fascinating. Okay, so moving on, you know, last few minutes that you've been talking, I'm just looking at you with admiration at the incredible amount of passion you have uh, for doing what you are. And the question that I wanted to ask you was that what gets you going every morning? I mean, obviously, the challenges are exciting enough, but what is it that every morning you jump out of bed and say, I'm looking forward to a great day? I think primarily it is the opportunity uh, to solve wicked problems, I would say, at scale. I'm very fortunate that uh, uh, working for the foundation, um, every day I'm able to work not only with the talent inside the foundation, but incredible people I interact with at a, on a daily basis and just... I'm blown away by the entrepreneurship, problem solving, whether that be technology, whether we're fintech, education that's going on. Our so it's a it's a it's a it's a canvas where it's waiting for us to really solve the problem and solve it at scale. Mm-hmm. So if you look at something like education as I've been talking, or if we look at the area of jobs livelihoods or we look at financial products, each one of them, Ashutosh, we believe not only um, helps lift millions, but really contributes to nation building. And there's there's actually a sort of, I think, an energy flow that happens uh, that I and the team in in the foundation uh, really gets charged up every morning to say time is very short. Mm -hmm. We have a lot to cover. We have uh, no sort of uh, luxury because every day uh, something gets delayed. Millions of children are not getting good education. Uh, So many million uh, youth are not being able to find a job. So that both the sense of urgency, the scale and just the opportunity to utilize whatever uh, skills and experience we have gathered to solve those problems is is really, really very exciting. Amazing. So with all the work that you are doing, what are your thoughts on work-life balance? Do you ever take a break and sit back? A great question. I've taught myself. I was not good at that at all towards, towards the beginning of my career. I've taught myself a couple of things, Ashdosh. One is one has to be very deliberate and plan for downtime. Correct. It will not happen if I say when I get time. Mm. Just like I plan for meetings, I plan for business trips, I plan for. So what I try to do 
is on an ongoing basis at as frequently as once in two months, I take short breaks. Excellent. And uh, uh, essentially try to get out of my familiar environment. So either I'm off to the hills or near the beach or somewhere and really unplug and uh, not think about work at all. It's not, it wasn't easy, but now I see I'm able to do it better and better. And the reason I'm able to do better and better are two things. One, I realize how important it is. Secondly, uh, Ashutosh, over my career, I've learned uh, I'm not that indispensable. Leaders have a tendency to think if I take two days off, the whole world is coming to going to go come to a halt. Actually, they don't. And actually, when I'm away, the the ability for others to do far more and step up happens. So coming back to it, I'm very, very deliberate about taking those breaks. Um, and when I do, I really have, I unplug. Unless it is an absolute emergency, which I actually see that even if it's an emergency, the team is talented enough to handle that. I rarely get a call to say, this is the problem. This uh, So that's yes. the best way I try to do, uh, really that's, unplug and go amazing. away from the familiar environment. That's quite amazing. And, you know, you've actually articulated something that I believe myself, which is, uh, I'm not indispensable, but not too many people would say that. And I think uh, your saying so is, is uh, says volumes, or speaks volumes on how secure you are and how comfortable in, you are in what you're doing. Uh, I completely appreciate it. I think one of the things, one of my mentors, uh, always advise me that if you want to go forward, re-engineer yourself up to, out of your job. I think that was one of the best advice yes. that if you don't, then you're stuck over there. But I think it's more like more than that. I think part of it also uh, comes down to really having talented people around, delegate, and then let them let them run with it and yeah. that in my career i've seen has worked very well but yeah i truly believe and uh, there haven't been much instances to say that when i stepped out things collapsed so mm. i'm not in, indispensable <laughs> at all well said well said okay next question that i ask all my guests uh, it is more like a learning for all our listeners is uh, talk to us a little bit about what would your learning be from uh, one of your big failures? I I think my, there are so many uh, that I don't know which we one all to talk about. Exactly. Yes. I always, uh, there's so many I think back and said, what was I thinking? Um, uh, but ultimately, probably many people, or a lot of other people will say, okay, he had a fantastic career. Probably he never made a mistake. I made so many mistakes. But I think if I were to point out one is, I know this is close to your heart, so I'm saying this not because you are a proponent. I didn't realize the power of really uh, building my own brand at the early stage of my career. I never thought that was important. I never thought I should even think about it. It didn't even occur to me. And uh, multiple times... I lost out. And then I used to sit back and think, why is it that I'm losing out? Why is it? Is it 
Should I blame everybody else? Or is there a mirror I can hold and say, what I could I do differently? I think the fact that I was expecting at that point of time that if I put my head down and just do hard work, it other people's responsibility to take care of me yeah. is deeply flawed. Mm. And so I think that was, uh, I would say till my mid-career, I was very bad at that. Mm. I think mid-career almost it was an existential shakeup to yeah. say I'm falling back. Mm. Uh, unless and until I fix this, nobody else will, right? Everybody can advise. Right. I had, and along with that, I think what happened, I think it came hand in hand, is around mid-career, I always also realized the power of and the benefit of having good mentors. Because what mentors bring to the equation is fundamentally different from what a functional or an organizational, so to say, leader or boss can bring, right? So I'm, those mentors were the ones who essentially were able to open my eyes and say, you know, do you realize that probably not many people know about you? Do you realize they don't know what value you're working hard in a corner and expecting? So I would say that there are many other probably uh, uh, mistakes in my life, but the biggest learning for me was not focusing on building my own reputation, my own brand. What does my name stand for? Anytime they're thinking about a particular topic, uh, does my name pop up in their mind? Uh, I think that was the biggest challenge and the biggest probably pivot and turning point in my career. Yeah, that, what you said is so important, you know. I go back 35, 38 years and I remember I had an American boss who told me, he says, you know, always remember that if you don't blow your own trumpet, nobody else will blow it for you. And then a few years later, another American boss right. told me the corollary to that, which was that don't blow your own trumpet. If you don't blow your own trumpet, nobody will blow it for you. But don't blow it so hard that you start hurting people's ears. <laughs> So absolutely. So, uh, and I think uh, uh, partly it is a little cultural, also, right? In India, we are we are almost from childhood we are taught yes. that uh, talking about yourself and uh, sort of promoting yourself is not a good thing. And so, I think what your boss said, I think, is very true. I think it has to be done with finesse. Correct. It is not about necessarily in your face bragging. It's not about putting another person down. But at the same time, what is it? How do we communicate and uh, make sure that we are not invisible? Correct. No, your own name, your own brand Correct. has to be out there. Absolutely. Irrespective Absolutely. of how much work you're doing, if you're not recognized. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the okay. difference, uh, you know, I experienced... I don't think necessarily that's necessarily a measure of success. But when I realized and I tried to uh, put my sort of myself, uh, you know, in more deliberate way to be networking, getting my name out, you know, out etc. Many things started changing. A, within the organizations I was working, I was being tapped to take over many other yep. that earlier were not coming. 
Second, I started getting uh, tapped on my shoulder from external sources to say, oh, we heard you're doing this one. Would you like to do that? Uh, so uh, the benefits definitely started coming and I could realize what those shortcomings were earlier as to I was feeling frustrated as to I'm working hard, but what's, what's not what's getting missing? adequate return. I agree. Devashish, thank you so much for being so candid and being uh, you know, so expansive on all the points that we have discussed. I'm sure our listeners are going to be really looking forward to hearing you take your advice. So thank you again on behalf of the brand called you for joining us on this podcast. I'm grateful you found the time. And thank you. Thank you, again. thank you for inviting me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Brand Called You podcast. Be sure to visit tbcy.in to join the conversation, access show notes and discover fantastic bonus content. You can follow us on YouTube, Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Simply search for the Brand Called You. Thank you and see you next week.